Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby Podcast. I find that if I say that more theatrically, it's easier to say my fucking tongue twister of a newsletter name. Anyway, today I've brought on a guest to talk about being a public figure and facing online critique, um, how to get yourself to write when you are not in the mood, and also how the kind of mechanisms through which we fund media Uh, affect the output of that media and where subscription models come into that as either an alternative model or like a more disruptive model. Um, These things I think are pretty intimately connected. And so I brought on a writer who also has a Substack newsletter and who I talk sometimes with on Twitter. Her name is Alicia Kennedy. Alicia is a climate, food, and culture writer. She's written for places like Nylon and The Village Voice. She has a subset called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, and her podcast, which is connected with it, is called Meatless. I love her newsletter. I like that it covers such different subject matter from mine, but I do think that sometimes we're circling similar topics around kind of the systems that govern our lives. And she's also just kind of a um, an emotionally attuned person and I thought she would have interesting thoughts on all of these topics. So if you want to make sure you're familiar with the source material of this podcast, check out my latest newsletter, number 29. It's a Dear Baby, where I answer five reader questions. And there are a couple topics I cover in that one, like what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't have the same political views as you and whether it can work, and also some of my thoughts around New York, what I love and dislike about it, and where I would live if I lived somewhere else. Uh, We didn't cover those things, so if you want to see my at-length essay answers to those questions, always at length, um, then just head to my Substack and read it there. Otherwise, um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alicia Kennedy, and I will see you at the end. All right, we're recording. (laughs) Okay, great. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Haley. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming on. You're in Puerto Rico, right? I am. Yes. How long have you lived there? Um, Since last July, I've been here. Um, I kind of unintentionally moved, but (laughs) I was coming for like a month and then I ended up staying. Oh, wow. Wait, and is your, you you mentioned your boyfriend in your newsletter sometimes. Is he from, is he Puerto Rican or? Okay. Yes. He's, he's the reason I moved. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, (laughs) I don't really know what's been the experience like with like the pandemic over there. Well, we had a lockdown pretty early when we only had one case from an Italian woman who came in on a cruise. And so we thought we'd kind of nip it in the bud pretty early, but then they reopened tourism in July and it, it ended up spiking again. I think we've had a recent spike again um, because of the amount of tourists coming in. So it's been a ride, I suppose, as, as it has been everywhere that is under the jurisdiction right. of the U.S. federal government, which has, has made no um, blanket regulations. Yes. <laughs> yes. All different flavors of horrible. Um, yes. <laughs> so... One thing I thought was, um, before we like dive into the topic, I wanted to talk to you about how we have kind of similar work lives, which I feel like is kind of unusual. I don't know anyone else is doing like a subscription newsletter and podcast. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I was impressed realizing that, I mean, you mentioned today that you're doing a talk and I know you're also working on a book Mm -hmm. and I was getting, I was very impressed that you were managing all this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's always the answer, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and I'm trying to be really honest. Like every time someone asks me about it and and they think I, you know, must have my life together in terms of how I manage what I'm doing. But I, you know, I keep trying to get ahead and like get everything done so that I can like focus on my book and have the newsletter and have that be it. But then, you know, every something comes up constantly, like either I'm doing a talk or um, I'm like doing edits on pieces I filed months ago because everything when I the pandemic started, so many pieces of mine just kind of like 
had to go on the back burner because they weren't right. relevant. And now I'm getting all the edits back. And it's like, gee, I thought my brain is, hasn't been here in months. How am I supposed to get back into this piece? But um, so I'm really hopeful <laughs> that maybe by 2021, I will have everything off my plate that I need to have off my plate so I can focus on the book because it, it's been really difficult. But all my work kind of like dovetails nicely into what the book is about, which is about how veganism is at its root in anti-capitalist, uh, you know, um, choice philosophy. And, and yeah. Mm. And so now, and how it's been kind of co-opted by capitalist forces. Um, and so, you know, everything I do works with that. So it's, it's not like I'm not thinking about it, but it is very stressful to have that on my, on my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. seems like a lot. I was wondering, like, how do you, um, like, do you feel stressed every week coming up with a new thing to write or do you feel like there's always just, there's like infinite possibilities with it? There's infinite possibilities, I think. I think I'm going to change my approach to it in, in the next year, but we'll see. Like uh, if I'll do like, you know, newsletter 2.0. But I, yeah, I think Got I it. always kind of have topics. It's easy to come up because of the format that I do, which is like just an essay like on like a topic. It's not that difficult um but it is it can sometimes i mean i i yeah i have ideas set for through i think november so that's good <laughs> wow good for you <laughs> i'm not like that at all with mine i mean i i take notes every week and i kind of decide on the fly because i feel like i have to be right. I, like in the mood to write about what i'm going to write about which is, mm -hmm. I mean, that's maybe something we can talk about later about like the fallacy of writing in general. But um, okay, well, let's 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 dive in because I I wanted to talk to you because you tweeted about um, my first Q and A, which was about like public figurehood and public critique, and you, right. um, I was maybe just going to ask like you pulled out a particular quote, which I'll read, um, and I'm just curious like what about that one. Um, what you've thought about on this topic in relation to sure. it. There's this pervasive belief that if you enjoy the perks of an audience, you must endure listening to strangers talk shit about you, that this is part of the exchange clout for shit talk. Yeah, that resonated with me because I had someone brought to my attention on Friday that, that a specific man has been tweeting about me and my work for a few months now. Oh no! <laughs> and I wasn't aware of it through screenshots uh, like screenshotting my tweets and, and you know, subtweeting and putting asterisks in my name <laughs> to, to kind of call, call my focus on climate change and capitalism a shtick. Um, oh. And so, uh, yeah, so it was really interesting. And so your newsletter was basically right on time for me. And that 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 quote was you know, because everyone who I was talking to about this incident was like, well, it's it's the price of now kind of being on the rise that like people are paying attention to your work. And so it's going to make people angry and it's going to make people jealous. And so this is what you have to deal with. <laughs> and so when you wrote that, I was like, is this really what I have to deal with? Is this what I should have to deal with for being, you know, not even an intentionally public or quote unquote successful person, you know, I've just been writing a newsletter and people have liked it and people have subscribed and that's, that's it. And like, yeah. and I, I had no, I had no, you know, ulterior motive. You know, I don't, I don't have a shtick. I really am an anti-capitalist who uh, focuses on climate change. Like this is, this is my work. Right. Like this is my, the focus of what I do. And so it was really, you know, I, I kept calling it kind of spooky just to, to know that I was that having that effect on someone's brain. And so, yeah, it, it just, I, I just don't think it's a valid exchange. I really appreciate, you know, good faith arguments with what I say. And, you know, I, I'm sure that I repeat myself so much, so that's valid, <laughs> but um, I don't, I don't understand why, you know, someone would, would take everything I, I say so, you know, badly. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally understand. Wait, so just to ask about this guy, do you think that he yeah. is, is he like technically quote unquote, like on your side, but doesn't like your tactics or thinks that you are like not actually on his side? Or is he somebody who sort of poo poos um, climate activism in general? 
I don't really know what his deal is okay. with me. He's also a journalist, um, you know, and and I, I kind of an ex gawker person, and so has that kind of vibe of of uh. being deep into irony, I suppose. And I am pretty like earnest in my work. Like I try. I mean, I can be ironic and I I can make jokes, but at the same time, I'm like super earnest. Like this is this is what I care about. Um, and so it was really yeah, it was it was weird because I couldn't tell whether he was on my side or not in terms of my politics. <laughs> I mean, it just seemed like, um, yeah, he's a person who doesn't understand that people might authentically care about the things going on in the world that like, if you don't have a like vocal ironic detachment that uh, I don't know that somehow you're performing for people. That's how it seemed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tend to think that people sort of see in others what, they themselves are sort of disingenuous about. <clears throat> exactly. But yeah, that's, the reason I asked that is because another conversation I was having with Jen Ag, who I connected with via right. the thread that you started, um, was this idea that it, it almost hurts more when it's someone who is who you would ostensibly agree with, maybe like in real life, um, mm-hmm. or you agree on a lot of things, and maybe it's a matter of sort of working out some of the kinks or discussing them but instead it's sort of they kind of interpret what you say in bad faith maybe their ego is involved maybe they just want to tear someone down or maybe there's some other like pathology involved and those are so much uh more like energy sucking than i think people yeah. on the like who, who completely disagree with me and just want to be cruel like i think of this mm-hmm. this like early on in in back in june I posted something about um, defending looting or like, or basically like why people loot. Right. And mm-hmm. it attracted like a, a new type of vitriol that I hadn't experienced before. And I actually don't think it was people who followed me. They were just like random people who found my post and were like mm-hmm. calling me a psycho. <laughs> and I honestly <laughs> didn't care. Like it just wasn't, right. it didn't, it didn't it didn't really hurt my feelings because I was like, well, we fundamentally disagree on this and like, there's no conversation to be had, but it's almost worse right. when someone is like, D- you do kind of see something similarly than for me when they like purposely misunderstand me or what I perceive as purposely, it makes me feel like so hopeless for like human communication. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. And it, it's, it, that is really energy sucking because you're like, wait, am I a bad writer that I'm not getting, yes. you know, my point across in a good way? Like, am I not, you know, thoroughly arguing my case, you know? And especially when you're someone who self-publishes, there's always the risk that you'll miss something because you're not being edited. You know, you're not in conversation with someone about what you're doing. And yeah, and I've, I've had this experience too before with pieces I've written on you know various subjects like yeah uh, the way the bad faith argument is always really 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 disheartening because you yeah you just really want to make your case to some and 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 have be understood and like pe- the pe- people who don't want to hear it won't hear it that's that's just the end of at the end of the day they're they, if they don't want to understand your perspective or agree to disagree or have a a, a pleasant argument on on good grounds then you know they're never going to going to do that but yeah i mean in in the case of this this dude it was really it's really just like a a petty media thing i think and and someone who hates substack and (laughs) hates that anyone reads me specifically for whatever reason so that's so strange because you're just so not like an incendiary (laughs) figure like or i mean i don't think of myself as being that either but just like it doesn't matter because there's just there's such a the internet is such a i mean it's it's very open and democratic and anybody can read anything and there's going to be like you just can't control your audience at all, which it makes it no. really hard to communicate because everybody's using really different logic. Mm-hmm. You know, what's yes. funny is, um, do you remember that I wrote in my response that somebody had told me that my quality was dwindling and oh yes, I was like, <laughs> essentially like I said, I was a grifter. Well, I got called a grifter too. Yeah. Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, she didn't use that exact word, but I felt it was the implication. Okay. I'm actually, I want to hear about that. Um, but she, you know, she saw the the essay and she emailed me. Oh, wow. And what did she say? Yeah. She was like, she sent me like a huge apology. Oh, wow. Isn't that very That's strange? Amazing. 
<laughs> that is. Yeah. It was very unusual like because typically that loop just doesn't close. And I don't really know how I feel about it. Like I, I think I appreciate her reaching out. She basically was like um, – I'm really ashamed, but like, I'm the person who left that comment. Like I, I immediately deleted it. I thought you'd never see it. Cause I like, I don't want to be that person. And like, to be honest, like, I think your writing is great. And I don't know why I said that. I was just like, I had a bad day and I just like, it was just such a strange, I wanted more detail. I kind of wanted to be like, yeah. Ooh, just like, tell me your thought pattern. Cause she said she does. She's never, she said she swore to God that she'd never left a mean comment before on the internet, <laughs> which I was wow. like, because I, I, I identify that way too. Like I, I for sure have critiques of people and there are things that aren't for me all the time. Like, yeah, like I said, I'm like, I'm not really anti gossiping. You know, if my, like, if my friend and I are like, oh, we didn't like this piece for this reason, we're kind of affirming a certain way that we see the world. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't usually take the leap to tell that person. Right. Because it's just my view, you know? I don't really, like, feel the need to, like, weigh in. And so many people do. I I thought it was a binary, but it was interesting to hear her be like, I don't typically do it, but I did this time. (laughs) I think, I mean, that's weird. I I, I mean, I don't, I've gotten, you know, anonymous hate comments. Not that many, thank God. But, you know, it really is so draining. And their words just stick in your brain. Oh, my God. It's ridiculous. I don't know if people realize that you're a real person or I there's this perception of people who have uh you know clout I guess is the word or like any sort of following that you know they maybe they have an assistant reading their emails or like like they're a celebrity or something or like maybe they're not like you know they're they feel untouchable because they're successful and so you don't you can just say whatever you want to say right and it's so invalid and it's and I and it's cruel uh, the words that people will feel free to put in your head about yourself and yeah and it's just it's bizarre and like I I said on Twitter about this is I really and I know I've I've failed at it in the past and I know that I've probably failed at it recently but I really do try to critique people's roles in in the world and pe- the power that people have structurally rather than them as a human being yes. and whenever I have a specific thing to say about a human being or their work I say it to my friends you know like you said like I keep it in the group chat and that's it and I don't uh you know try and and make bad blood publicly um though I have you know, even if I've tried to be nice to people, sometimes if they're mad, they're going to be mad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I think you're right that there's, I think critiquing the structures is definitely more productive and useful. I think like another side of that is I think the reason that people do leave negative comments or want to like, you know, hold people to account, even if that just ends mm-hmm. up meaning like leaving rude comments or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a result of like a perceived powerlessness that most people have. Like, I think most people don't feel like they have a voice. They don't feel like they have power to change anything. And that's not their fault. It's Mm -hmm. definitely structural. And it's, I think like, especially if you take like a celebrity, right. Who's like filthy rich and has all the opportunities and they're like very time rich and things like that, that most people don't have access to. There's this sense that, um, well, first of all, there's like a sense of resentment, which I think totally right. makes sense because it's obviously like the system's just stacked against everyone. Um, but also just this feeling that like, oh, that's all that they don't have the same problems I do. Like a little, right. like a mean comment on the internet wouldn't make them feel bad when, um, when like, and this is something that Nick Cho was talking about and, and I were talking right. about under your thread as well, <laughs> which is that like, um, actually like social belonging is pretty important to most people. Mm -hmm. And I think like the the trick of the internet, especially is that it's not just like one bit of critique. It's like an aggregate. So you're getting maybe, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of people and telling you something or disagreeing with you or trying to basically like ostracize you. And it's Mm -hmm. really powerful. It's, it's, Like, like you said, it's like hard to imagine before you've experienced it. Cause I think like when I, before I was like living even like semi-publicly as I am now, I remember thinking that people were just kind of sensitive. I was like, why should you mm-hmm. care what some like idiot, like random person on the internet thinks? Like, of course they don't matter. Like, of mm-hmm. course, you know, it's so easy to see. But then when it, it's you, it feels so different. <laughs> yes. Yes. It feels so personal. Yeah. And, and 
and yeah, and I wish I didn't spend, you know, my whole weekend, okay, like with these, this person's words about who I am and, or who they believe me to be in my brain. And it's, and it's like, it's, it's so awful. Um, Do you like debate them in your head? I mean, this one I feel like wasn't even worthwhile because it wasn't like a really, you know, pointed critique of anything I've ever said. It was just kind of invalidating my whole, (laughs) my whole career Career, and all of my work. And so that was, you know, it's just different. It's different. And it it didn't make me like, everyone was like, oh, are you sad? Are you upset? But I was like, I'm not upset. I'm just like weirded out and annoyed by the, (laughs) and, and so, yeah, but there are like, if this person was someone who I really take seriously, I, I, and they were, you know, debating me on, on good terms, I would have, that would have been fine. But yeah, it's just so weird to have someone kind of like, obsessively get bothered by you <laughs> yeah <laughs> when you're yeah yeah I mean I feel like I even struggle sometimes with like I, I don't know if I would define this as like good or bad faith but some people just like offering me critical feedback like there was a reader oh. once who said like or recently said that they thought that like my way of sort of weaving together serious topics and like levity was um was like immature and that I and maybe sort of like a, a result of my kind of internalized misogyny. Oof. And I just like totally disagreed with that. Like it, yeah. it, it was framed in like this sort of like it almost sounded like sh- this commenter was kind of like an intellectual of like journalism. Yeah. <laughs> Even though like this yeah. is I, I don't know who this person is. I don't know anything about their life. But um, it just bothered me. Like and I don't and I don't want to. I don't know what it is. And like, maybe this comes back to, and I want to ask you about this, like, does it come back to me not being self-assured enough? Because like, you know, if, if you really disagree with somebody, it's easy to wave it off, but like, maybe there's something that gets under your skin about a comment and that like reflects more so on you than them. Right. No. And I, I, I don't know if it is an issue of being self-assured enough or not, because I think even if you're extremely like confident in yourself that someone telling you you're full of shit is going to make a, an impact, you're going to be like, what? Whoa, how did I give that vibe off? Like, what what about me made you think that even if you're and I like I would put myself as like a confident person who is, you know, assured in in what I do um, it. But yeah, it's very difficult to 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 still be Teflon in the face of that, you know, like everyone, it doesn't matter who you are. Someone telling you you're an asshole is going to, is going to make you kind of like be like, huh, am I, am I an asshole? Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think it has, I don't think it's, it's so much more about the person making the comment than it is about the person receiving the comment. As you said that it's like, it's just, yeah, it's just impossible to, uh, have a good effect when you're just a shit talker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's tough because it, it seems like it's maybe just like part of the gig, but I think that right. what's in, what I think is particularly tough about it is that you do kind of need to be open to feedback. Like you mm-hmm. said, good faith debate and discourse mm-hmm. is like what we're trying to maybe not debate necessarily all the time, but like good faith exploration and discourse is like what we're after. Right. Like I don't just want people to be like, you're incredible. (laughs) Like (laughs) I'm open to it, but I think the problem is that it becomes so hard to parse the difference. Like a lot of times they sound really similar, like, and I don't know how to be open to that and also closed off to the shitty stuff because it's just not like always clear. And so you end up taking in shitty stuff and just feeling awful. Right. Yes. No. And uh, yeah, it's hard because like to my newsletter specifically, I've had pretty much blanket positive feedback and if not positive, then engaged in the conversation feedback, you know? And so, and I've always been like, when is the hate going to come? (laughs) And so, I mean, if it comes in tiny drips, that's fine. Like I get it, but yeah, I'm just, it, it's the fear of like this wave of negativity. I think that that does plague me somewhat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and as you wrote, like this idea that you're only as good as your last essay, like, yeah, like every Monday I'm like, Oh, is this going to be the one that everyone hates? Like, is this where I could, I totally fuck up and everyone unsubscribes, you know? And so, 
that's that's a real fear and that's but i think that's the 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 price of living as a you know creative person is you're always going to be only as good as the last thing you put out i mean that's just it yeah oh it's so awful <laughs> i mean i also I think that's like maybe that's like the price of the freedom of being self-employed too yes yeah it's this feeling of like okay like everybody could unsubscribe from my newsletter tomorrow and um like the memory everyone's memories are pretty short Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why I asked you the question in the beginning about like whether you ever struggle doing it every week because sometimes I just have a week where I am just I just maybe I'm depressed but like mm-hmm. or or anxious but I just feel like n- I can't string a sentence together. Right. And I don't I literally sometimes I'm at a loss for what to do in those weeks. Like sometimes I really power through and I get to the other side. And this is like the weird alchemy of writing that like maybe mm-hmm. can lead us into the next question, but like I don't know. Sometimes I can't tell like whether I need a break or whether I should push through and when my livelihood is on the line, you know, there's no right. there's no there's no cushion for yeah. you to just like have an off week. It's right. it's a little yeah, price of admission, I guess, but it is, yeah. <laughs> what do you do when you can't write? Well, for me, you know, uh, the lucky thing for me is that my newsletter is pretty much always easy for me to write because all I'm doing is talking. Like, I don't, um, like, it's very much, you know, just a, a, a flow of things. So it's not always that difficult to write. Everything else for me is more difficult, you know. <laughs> um, and so... I always read is always my response to not being able to write. And Mm -hmm. I I always try to read outside of what I am doing um, in order to kind of break down my own um, concerns about whether I am fulfilling what I need to do, you know? Um, And so like, I always try to read outside what I do. So I read a lot of art magazines. I read a lot of like fiction. I read poetry and try to just get my brain to work in a different way. And that always tends to loosen things up so that I'm not, um, yeah, obsessed. But of course there's days where you're just freaking, especially when, you know, when you're writing every week, like you're going to be mentally exhausted. You're going to have days where you just want to watch TV. And, and I think giving into that is the best thing always (laughs) like if you want to like just go out and you know have something to eat or have a cup of you know if you just want to walk if you just want to watch tv if you just want to like stare at the wall I think that those are all the best ways to get over the hump because I don't like people who say they just sit at their computer and like look at the document and just like try and will their brain to work (laughs) for me like that's like that's so silly it's like go do something else and and it'll come to you you know like I always have I mean this is why the pandemic's been so hard it's like I always have my lead ideas when I'm walking um and when I'm walking yeah like quiet like with total quiet in my brain and so um yeah it's always better to just do something else like i've i've just found that sitting at at your computer if nothing's working is the worst thing to do yeah i definitely agree i think especially if you don't know what you're going to write about i think sometimes yeah. if i if i have the pieces and i'm sitting in front of it like maybe this is just kind of the kind of uh founding principle of writing in general but sometimes i just want to close it and like walk yeah. away forever <laughs> um, which i do think is like a natural it's it can be I mean it depends on what you're writing about I do think that um obviously I think we're covering slightly different topics whereas maybe yes. I'm doing more um like personal emotionals excavation um you actually also have that too I love how you like mix it together but um for me sometimes like I want to just shy away from it especially like the vulnerability and like how that can be I, I don't know have you ever had the experience of like writing something really vulnerable and then feeling good about it and putting it out and then afterward just like wanting to hide. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, last week I wrote about very something very personal and you know, the response is so beautiful and that's lovely, but at the same time it's like, oh, I just gave all these people like a piece of myself in some way. Um, but I at the same time I also think I mean, this might be because I'm a Scorpio, but I always hold something back from everybody. Um and and don't yeah, and so that's why it's more annoying to me when people think they know me or like know everything about me because it's like no you just from reading me or even reading my tweets which are just like you know bullshit that I I send out into the world um it's like 
is so absurd because I'm always keeping things for myself, even if I'm writing something very personal. Um, so yeah, it's very odd. Like, I mean, yeah, I've had like a hate email where someone was like, you're definitely rich because you've been to Italy. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> that logic. And it's like, I, and it's like, so, but then that works its way because this one person, like very, very personal and deeply researched hate email really got into my craw. I, I like, it's worked its way into my other writing where it's like, I'll be honest that I had to use all of my savings to buy the ticket to Italy, you know? And it's like, um, or what the trip to Italy meant to me at that time in my life. And so I guess that's good about getting really intense and personal criticism is that you'll see what you're holding back from the world that's making people think things that are not true. And so whatever you're comfortable with giving, you can give a little so that they have a fuller picture and they're not making these kind of deranged hmm. things statements but only if yeah. it feels organic like my working that into my future pieces felt organic you know but I did have that person in my brain being like you're rich because you went to Italy and <laughs> and you know and like uh yes yeah, the way that this person you know described my myself which was totally off base but gave me a sense of what I was projecting to people um that was actually sort of helpful, even though if it was very hateful. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. interesting you say that. I've had that experience too, where like, I think the first time I read sort of hateful comments about my writing was, um, and I do think this was like part particularly cruel wording, which was in, earlier in my career, someone saying that, um, like, I thought I was a good writer, but like, actually I wasn't. And that, oh, and I that, that was like really embarrassing, the gap. <laughs> Which is just like, isn't don't you feel like that's just designed to like cut so deep? No, yeah, like, but, no, it's know. it's true. And like, call, like how this dude, like I don't know, he said like, oh, everyone in this person's field says that they're utterly mediocre. And I'm like, who are you talking to? And oh my god, that is so oh, that is awful. I know. I'm that so is sorry. I mean, it's it is what it is, and it's like I can imagine who's saying this because it's the people I probably critique um, without naming them in terms of like people who have institutional power in me. Media, whereas I don't that's the thing is like I'm self-publishing a newsletter like I don't have institutional power or institutional backing and I never have as a writer really I've I've been a freelance like before I was a freelance writer I was just a copy editor at New York Magazine and Food and Wine and so whenever I've had institutional backing it's because I wasn't writing what I actually think and so I you yeah. know there and I think it's a value system. It's like there are people who really, really value having institutional like validation, and I don't really necessarily. And so it's just a difference in perspective. And I think that I mean, you coming from you know a women's website and then writing a newsletter, people are going to feel very, very comfortable telling you you're not a good enough writer when you certainly are. And so like people because of the misogyny and also because of the way people perceive hierarchies in media, you know, they're they're going to say, oh, women's website self-published, you know, I don't have to take this person seriously. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's something I grapple with a lot. <clears throat> I think that like feeling like I need to be have bylines at like the New York Times, the New Yorker and Atlantic and like whatever, you know, these sort of tentpole powerhouse media right. places. Um, but realizing actually that those are, um, those are kind of like these institutional places that have, um, you know, a lot of people get those jobs because they have, have like Harvard degrees mm -hmm. and they like their uncle was a journalist <laughs> and there's like, there's all, everyone's always got an uncle, you know? Yeah. Um, but actually there's like a lot of really, really talented people at those places. So I don't mean to make a blanket statement, but oh, of course. I think I've been sort of unpacking that in my mind too. And, and yeah. the reason, the reason I even brought up that comment was that, um, like you said, there was something about, it that I found useful, not yes. particularly saying that I wasn't a good writer, but they had said that I was like, they were making fun of like that I mentioned Joan Didion and Nora Ephron. Oh God. And, <laughs> and I, I remember, I remember being annoyed because they characterized it as like constant when I felt like I'd, I'd reference each of them like once. Yeah. But, um, but I just remember thinking like, even though I was devastated, cause that was my first experience with it. I, um, 
I do remember thinking once I got over it that it was kind of useful that to know that some people interpreted my voice that way. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know if I would say it was worth it, but I do <laughs> think that there's like it can like it can be useful. Although I think to your point about like having that person's comment in mind when you wrote, sometimes I worry about like taking like a defensive posture right did you you see that like amanda hess tweet a while back that everyone was talking about where she mentioned that like there's now this sort of like disclaimer paragraph in a lot of essays yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i've been thinking about that of like not really wanting to defend like why i should be able to talk about a topic because like anyone should be able to talk about any topic uh if they're doing a good job right you know Right. Absolutely. But um, yeah. But I mean, it's like I'm sure that there there are definitely things that I leave out about like my upbringing and stuff that could maybe lend me some kind of credibility. But I get nervous about it, like seeming like I'm trying to prove something. Yeah. No. And I think that's why it has to be like super organic to what you're writing about. It can't be like a force. Yeah. It can't be a paragraph about privilege. Which actually today I wrote about. <laughs> I published an essay on chocolate and I was like, oh, should I apologize that like my grandpa brought me chocolate? <laughs> like, is that something I should like apologize for? Like, because, you know, and I mean, no, like, you know, I write so much about how the systems work in capitalism and in white supremacy and in patriarchy. And so it's not like I'm not aware of things. And also like, Yeah, it's just really difficult. Like, I don't want to write that paragraph, but I do want to weave in into my work the realities of my life because I do think that that is important for what I write about. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, One conversation that kind of started around this topic about writing was the idea of being a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I don't know if you had a chance to read this one, but I talked about looking up Leslie Jameson's age. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, so there was some conversation down below about um, finding it inspiring to look up late bloomers. But mm-hmm. one thing, one essay I never wrote that I always kind of like was thinking about writing was kind of critiquing the late bloomer lists. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean like naming people who had works that came out like in their fifties and sixties and like who we think of as being like these huge figures, they actually didn't start until they're older. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that there's still something kind of inherently capitalistic about those. I think that they're kind of working under the same premise, which is that, um, which is that to, to make something worthwhile, there needs to be an option to be or a possibility of becoming commercially successful. Yeah. And that yeah. that should be the reason. So to say like, oh, well, you could do it when you're 50, to me just feels like it's putting off the the lesson. So like, right. so if, let's say you turn 50, you still haven't done it. Like, is it still not worth it? Because I think yeah. that instead, maybe the more useful framework would, to be, would be to say, well, maybe you never have to be successful to do something. No, I'm actually, I'm writing about this for next week. I'm writing about just the idea of work and, and what's the the point of it and, and ambition and, and how you deal with that in capitalism when you don't really like capitalism. Um, but, you know, for me, I didn't really start writing about food until I was almost 30. It was the year I turned 30. And so like, <laughs> but I've never been, I mean, I guess when I was younger, I was more obsessed with these kinds of things of like when I was going to be successful Um, I will say that I was excited when I was on NPR before David's like I I checked how old David Sedaris was when he (laughs) when he first went on NPR. And so I beat him in that. And then I think I'm beating him in when his first book comes out. Like, but at the same time, I like my anxiety more than like age or late bloomer thing is being a food writer versus being a literary writer. And that's Mm -hmm. my real that's my the tension and anxiety in my own life. Um, and well, it's so, funny to me, it was David Zadaris. Like, why is he your benchmark? Uh, I think because because he didn't get famous early. He had to have all these weird jobs to to you know have stuff to write about. Um, yeah, and yeah, and he came to to being a famous writer really untraditionally in terms of like he was first telling his stories on NPR, not you know, publishing them. Um, 
in writing. Uh, and so, I mean, and yeah, and just be, I mean, for me, like I, when I was be starting to be a writer, like all I wanted to do was write for the village voice, which I did. Um, and so I always like alternative routes, um, to things Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, the, the straight and narrow path. Um, and also, I mean, he's <laughs> he's very famous and rich. Um, well, it's funny that you chose someone who's like similar, like like you purposely chose someone where it would be like down to the wire. Like you could have picked someone who like got established in their fifties, right, right, right. No, <laughs> but no, it's but I like this self punishing mechanism to be like it, I have to do it now. It is a little bit, but I I mean I think it's for me it's more of like a joke, I guess, and not like a yeah, too yeah, totally. serious thing. I mean, obviously, it's like I want you know you want to be a writer who has you know their books in a big display in the airport you know and like (laughs) because I mean being a writer I mean even though I write about like sort of niche things it's it's still about wanting to connect to other people and so right I want to I think even though I don't I'm not writing like funny stories about my family though I could um (laughs) I want to connect with people on that level and I like the idea I mean, when my first book proposal was being rejected (laughs) everywhere, um, one of the editors said my writing was rigorously non-snobby. And so I think that that's also kind of like David Sedaris in a way. Um, Okay, that was a good compliment, yeah? It was a compliment for sure. Uh, Okay, great. My rejections were very nice. Um, It was just more about me not being marketable. Um, (laughs) But non-snobby. Yes. Interesting. Which, I mean, a lot of people would probably, I mean, I think I'm using, you know, I'm I'm sometimes a bit obtuse now in my newsletter at times, maybe. But at the same time, I think I'm trying to, like, bring, like, giant concepts to in people in like bite-sized pieces you know like um, yeah, like people not like not just speaking to like an academic crowd who's already thinking oh yeah about these things right yeah yeah and like I think that is I mean today actually I'm giving a talk on this like I think that it is the the you know role of the writer and of a food writer especially to give people things in digestible no pun intended um you know, bites, you know, and, and, and to talk about big things that are affecting everything in ways that people aren't overwhelmed or alienated by. And so, yeah, I try to be rigorously non-snobby in a Sedaris-esque manner um, because I really do want to talk to everybody. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something, I think writing on your own, striking out on your own is, that's like the only path, right? Or I think right. that's what's kind of beautiful about it. And that maybe can lead us nicely into like the third topic, which was about um, nuance. S- someone asked me like why I didn't think nuance translated well in online writing. And I talked a little bit more about why I don't think nuance performs as well in like the online media landscape. Um, and I know you've tweeted in the past about, I think you have, about like the subscription model. And whether right, there's like legit journalism under it. Okay, yeah, I'm remembering that correctly. <laughs> um, so I thought, um, I do think that there is something about self-publishing that feels more concerned with, you know, really reaching people. Right. You know, because, and I, and, and I mentioned this in my answer, which is that like, you kind of can't make you can't ask people to pay for work that they think is kind of throwaway or inaccessible or maybe even just like su- uh, superficial kind of candy or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Either, either side of the spectrum, like either really superficial or like really hard to navigate uh, or like rather hard to understand. Um, so I'm just curious, like what are your thoughts on, kind of going having having worked for some of these institutions and then going out on your own like the differences between the two well I think going out on my own allows me to simply express my voice more fully you know I mean when I'm Mm -hmm. writing my essays for the newsletter like I know where an editor would be like cut this explain this like yeah and yeah you know paraphrase this like I know exactly where that would happen and I still will just do what I feel like doing I think that's the big <laughs> difference you know yeah. like um in knowing you know, having been edited so deeply and so much throughout you know the five years that I've been a freelance writer um knowing 
exactly where those things would happen and still doing them and still just being like, this is what I want to say and what I want to put out there. Um, I think that's really the distinction, you know? And so, but it's funny because uh, since I've been doing the newsletter, like other editors from other publications have been more open to giving me the leeway to have my voice in, in what, in what I write, you know, because now they know what it is and now, um, they know that it has a big audience. And so now they're like, oh, okay. Like Alicia can write how she writes because we already know it's successful. Um, which is a little annoying, but at the same time, it's like, okay, good. Like it needed, if it was going to happen, like, I'm glad it happened, you know, this way, I guess, um, where I have, you know, a revenue model that benefits me, um, and not like a blog where I'm just doing it for free. Um, and so, right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's like all these opinion editors from like, uh, prestigious publications are like, oh, Alicia, can you write a, an opinion piece? Which is bad because opinion pieces pay very little, but at the same time, it's like, okay, like I get to have my voice on on various subjects, like actually be expressed. Um, so it's really interesting how that that works. What do you think about like the topics you're able to cover under subscription versus? Because I mean, maybe this is starker for me, having gone mm-hmm. from um, a pretty blatantly like. Uh, ad funded. I mean, everything's ad funded, but, um, there was a sense that to critique consumerism was to, was going to be kind of antithetical to the entire business model. Um, so maybe it's a little starker for me having gone from that to being able to like, you know, talk like really specifically about what I think is unethical about that Mm -hmm. business model, or even just the, obviously like capitalism in general. But I'm wondering if you had that split for you or you feel like there's freedom to kind of critique more freely when you're just under your own uh, newsletter. Well, for sure. Yeah, I definitely feel super free to say whatever. But at the same time, for me, my essays are not subscriber based, only my interviews and like discussion threads. Mm -hmm. Also, going back to critique, I think having a... um, having a weekly discussion thread on my newsletter, like gives people the space to tell me what they want to tell me. Um, which I think helps, uh, people feel better about if they don't agree with something I say. Uh, but also, yeah. So the subscription model for mine is like really uh, caring about who I talk to in my interviews, which is like a very curated, like I don't talk to people because I think they're going to get the hits that <laughs> um, I talk to people because I think their work is interesting. And I think that, you know, what they say will be engaging and and go along and kind of fit into the broader picture of what I'm kind of doing with my newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't have like a it's not I mean, I think the 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 bad thing about it is that people have to be really invested in me <laughs> as a figure to subscribe. Like I, I don't there is no other reason to do so I guess like uh, unless well, you're in there is because yeah well I think sorry to interrupt you no, um no I think what I meant isn't necessarily that only your subscription or like paywalled content is um more free but the whole thing because the entire endeavor is is funded by readers rather than right. by brands or like right. and it's not and it's not funded by like clickability so yeah. like maybe in your free newsletters, because you have um, a subscription base and that this project is basically self-funded by its readers, you do not have to create n- free newsletters that are necessarily um, like super incendiary or like hot takes that are going right. to attract eyes or um, whatever, like th- all the kind of shiny filters we try to put <laughs> ideas through so that they attract more eyes because more eyes means more ads money um yeah yeah, so i feel like that whole system you know what i actually thought about is when i was reading your last newsletter about chocolate um i know this is kind of a leap but (laughs) you mentioned um that the artificially low cost of chocolate um leads consumers to believe that the product isn't special or worthwhile right um and i think something similar happens with free media yeah. There's this feeling that, well, it's all free. And you also mentioned that like people people really need to be convinced to spend like $14 on a chocolate bar that's ethically made, but they don't really need to be convinced to buy a cocktail. 
Right. And there's, so there's this weird division of like what we're willing to pay for in certain areas. Like some people feel, I mean, I used to always joke about like how for some reason, like paying a dollar for an app felt so much worse than like literally like dropping a dollar on the ground and not realizing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, and it's because you're so used to getting it for free that it feels really expensive. So I think, you know, $5 a month to people for a newsletter that they're so used to getting it for free seems insane. Whereas like they'll pay $40 on a sweatshirt that they wear once or whatever, right. you know? Right. Yeah. There's this weird division. And I think it's because of the artificially low cost. Like, of course, websites are not free to produce. Like, of course, <laughs> these writers and editors are having to be paid. Um, but there is less value placed on it because people don't have to pay. Sorry, that was kind of a diatribe. No, that's um, that's great. <laughs> no, exactly. Yes, yes. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. That Yeah, it's people are so used to getting content for free that they don't, they don't think that it's worth paying for anymore. I think that like it's it's there are things to work out with the subscription model. Like I think public funded media would also be great yeah. to have so, so that it's more accessible. And I think that like I like the model of having some stuff free so that people who maybe aren't as invested but they're still curious to read. Like maybe it wouldn't be worth it to them regardless, but they I don't want to block them from the content necessarily. Mm-hmm. So maybe having I guess it's kind of like it's kind of like a communist approach. Those who can pay will, and those who can't don't have to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. There's so many different <laughs> angles. These are all so interconnected. Um, it's true. Yeah. Because like the, the, the kind of monopolistic um, way that corporations own all media is making it really addictive, and that's what's causing people to be really reactionary and like leaving mean comments gives them a little dopamine hit. Yeah. Because they're designed <laughs> to be addictive. <laughs> All of these are very connected. Right, right. Well, this is so nice <laughs> to talk to you and Rich. And sorry I was I was fully just like soapboxing in the end there. No, no, I appreciate it. No, I'm I'm only distracted because I have to do this talk. Oh my god, um, yes. Please, please, no. please go prepare. <laughs> um, but I appreciate it so much. It's been so nice to have a conversation about these things with someone who, like you said, is kind of doing the same thing um and and, and dealing with the same issues (laughs) yes it's a very strange strange time but it was so nice (laughs) to talk to you and good luck with your talk thank you thank you and and thank you so much for having me thank you again for coming okay that's it for this week if you have any thoughts or comments feel free to leave them in the comment section or just reply to the email as always um and thank you for listening i'll see you next week bye